I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. What's up, everybody? Josh here. Just wanted to let you know that Brush Creek Monsters has been updating their site weekly with new Doe on Fire estrus. Myself, Chris, Rick, and the rest of our team have been using Doe on Fire estrus since late October with great success. So head on over to the website at brushcreekmonstersllc.com and get you a bottle of Doe on Fire. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used the 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition. Custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S A T T I E S L L C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. Buck down, baby. Oh my gosh, that was freaking awesome. This is my first public land buck. This is my second set of the season. I can't even. Oh my gosh, I just heard him fall. I just heard him fall. 
I just shot my Kentucky buck. All right. Is it Skleener or Skleener? Or Skleener. Sklenner. Okay. But it, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I want to get it right. Yeah, Leonard the one Sklenner. you didn't say. Leonard Sklenner. <laughs> that was a Leonard Sklenner. Sklenner. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, All right. that is awesome. Cheers, boys. Cheers, guys. Welcome to Fuel by the Outdoors. We're your hosts, Rick Gates, Chris Leppert, and Josh Luck. What up, though? Hey, everyone. And we are joined tonight by a very special guest, Jacob Sklenner. Jacob, how's it going? It's it's fantastic. It's great to be sitting with you guys virtually right now <laughs> and, and on the line here, man. I'm excited. We're, re we're really excited to, to have you on because you, you just, you killed an absolute code of a buck um, <laughs> that uh, ever the world is going to get to see. Uh, uh, well, we're dropping this the same day, correct? Yeah. yeah. So, so technically tonight, guys. Yeah, technically yeah. tonight when you're done listening to this, go. We'll put Jacob's uh, information in the in the liner notes of this. Click there, and you'll be able to go straight to the video after this. But um, Jacob, we normally start this podcast out by having our guests kind of go over, you know, their life in hunting and kind of who they are. You know, just a little bit about themselves, and then you know we'll get into more about the hunt, scout, and all that kind of stuff. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and everything about you. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin and I was in a very, very rich deer camp kind of culture. When I, when I first got into deer hunting, I was around eight or 10 years old or something like that. And we would go way up to Nicolay, Wisconsin and hunt some national forest land. And, um, none of us really knew what the heck we were doing. We would just hunt seven out of the nine days of gun season. And we'd be really, really happy to see two deer. And if it was anything, that had any bit of antler on it we were super excited to shoot it and honestly the does too but um that's how i grew up and um i just loved it like i couldn't explain it but i absolutely loved it i was always one that would find a way to get a deer uh, when most of the other guys in our camp would just sit the same stands and have no idea if they were going to see anything or not um, i was always moving trying to find a way to get a deer uh eventually when my dad got sick of sitting in a blind with me he would turn me loose and i'd I'd go out and kill something, but, um, you know, I, I just couldn't handle only having seven days out of the year to hunt. And then my dad, when I got into high school, he's like, dude, you know, you could bow hunt. Right. And I was like, what? Like <laughs> we'd always watch monster bucks and stuff. And he's like, you can go bow hunt. And I'm like, I'm 14. Can, can I? And he's like, yeah, go for it. And so, um, I got into bow hunting a little bit in high school. I'd say I really put a good attempt at it. Uh, my senior year of high school, and uh, nothing really came of that. But when I got into college, um, I went to UW-Platteville in southwestern Wisconsin. And I discovered some Blood Brothers DVDs in my basement and found the hunting beast and became absolutely obsessed with that. And I had wrestled my entire life. Uh, I'd been coached by Olympian and UFC fighter Ben Askren. And um, so. It, oh, really? Yeah. So I got to see greatness at a young level. So we got to have Olympians like Jordan Burroughs. I got to run a camp and be the training dummy with Kyle Snyder, who is, I think, was the one of the youngest Olympic champs ever. I think mm -hmm. he won the Olympics as a junior in college. Um, so he he's insane, crazy good guy too. And but I got to meet a lot of really great guys and actually wrestle with them and, and see what dedication was and what hard work was. I knew at a very young level. Um, and so 
I went to school to be a mechanical engineer and I learned how to work smart. I learned how to apply my brain and use statistics and knowledge and math to try to gain an upper hand in, in my own life. Um, obviously, I saw the application at school, but extrapolating that to learning and, and knowing that learning that stuff was not going to be easy. Um, I had to figure out how I could learn the quickest and the best in order to even get by in college um, with a wrestling schedule in college as well. And so a lot of guys say, you know, like work smarter, not harder, or some guys just work very hard. Well, I always work smarter and harder. So I worked as hard as I could, as smart as I could. And um, that dove right into my passion of deer hunting. Um, and I was so obsessed with deer hunting. I would schedule my classes around it. Every time I wasn't at a wrestling practice or something like that, I'd be cranking up early to get out in the woods somewhere. Um, my coaches joked at home meets. They would announce over the speakers that me and my roommate that I had corrupted had um, animal population management minors. And um, <laughs> no one caught the joke because people thought it was legitimate from how much time we spent in the woods. Um, but yeah, man, I, I grew obsessed with deer hunting and in, in the southwest Wisconsin area in the hill country. And I ended up in my years of college, I went for five deer seasons worth and I killed four bucks on four different properties. And uh, every new, every year I was hunting a new property for the first time because of land getting sold or being destroyed by the DNR or something like that um, for land access purposes. But oh uh, yeah, so it, it forced me to adapt over and over again, uh, learn deer really quickly. And, and eventually I found my way back this year into marsh country for the first time, legitimately hunting it and um, on completely new properties with no historical knowledge and somehow found a way to make it work. I like it. <laughs> I'm really glad you brought up the uh, just the college, like the whole learning aspect, trying to figure out how to learn. Because um, I've told Chris and Rick, right, I feel like that's, <laughs> Josh has been trying to get us to talk about this on a podcast for <laughs> over a year at this point. There we go. He sent I me a like message that's... before the podcast, so <laughs> I feel like it's it's an important part of just trying to like figure out how to learn, just like you know woodsmanship hunting tactics trying to figure out you know these big mature bucks um like it's you kind of have to figure out how to learn first in For order sure. to like sift through all the information that's out there and then apply it um, but i'm glad you brought that up because that is something i've kind of talked to chris and rick about yeah one of the struggles i face nowadays with that is there's information everywhere and there's mm -hmm. a lot of information that doesn't apply to your specific situation and so there's plenty of moves, let's say, in wrestling that work really well. But if your opponent's not getting the right pressure, you're going to fall on your face or get pinned or something like that. You know, so like you need to apply the right technique, but in the right situation. And so when I I was fortunate because I got to learn from the best from the start. I got to learn like stellar tactics. I was never, you know, I, I watched Monster Bucks and Real Tree and all that stuff growing up, but like I never saw the application directly because I grew up hunting Northern Wisconsin where you see more wolves than deer. And so like, I, I knew that wasn't going to work there, you know, and I didn't have the option to sit on a food plot. So like I was immediately searching for elite technique and I, and I clung to that from the start. And so I never had time to form bad habits. And so I think the thing that really helped me at first in developing my style and what I like to do and where I'm successful is vetting your sources and making sure that it's applying to your situation and starting from a clean slate of, of the proper technique 
in the right situations. And then no matter how much you respected the person that gave you that opinion, for me, it was Dan Infault. That's kind of how I got my start was, was hunting with Dan, putting up videos for Dan. Um, when, when I started even with that, I would half believe everything Dan said, you know, I knew there was a lot of truth to it, but I would apply it in situations and vet that information and try to prove it wrong. Cause you know, like in, in science, like you don't seek to prove yourself right because it does nothing for you to get a right result on a wrong theory a hundred times. If you yep. can't prove something wrong, then it has to be true. So I right. would take every bit of information I had and try to prove it wrong. And if it didn't work in my situation, it might've worked in another. So I didn't just write it off, but I quickly found out what was going to help me get a deer down in that year. And then I would have to move on to a new property the next year and just almost start all over. But when you start to gain those similarities, I mean, you can apply it across even completely different terrain types. Mm -hmm. I love right. that <clears throat> a lot. And when, when you just get the, the practice and the repetitions and going, you know, like you said, to different terrain types, once you're, once you're applying those tactics and trying to figure out, you know, what works and, you know, like you said, proving it wrong, like if it's not wrong, it must be right. Once you figure out those similarities, then when you get in a new situation, you're able to identify which tactic to use quicker, which is why you see a lot of these guys that have a lot of experience on hunting public lands or pressured deer or whatever. A lot of times they're getting on deer pretty quick. Um, it's just, you know, they've, they've been through the process and they're able to identify the situation and identify the right tactics quicker than, than others. It just takes time and practice. Mm -hmm. it's, Absolutely. it's always interesting too, because when you're walking through, scouting call it like sort of stacking the sign against each other or whatever you find you know one area and then put it up against another and then another and then all of a sudden you get to that spot which is kind of like what i relate you know to my buck where it's like i need an adult like this is it <laughs> i better like we gotta get in a tree right now yeah so it's it's cool and like you said josh some of these guys, I mean, they get on deer super quick. It's ridiculous. Um, they're not taking a week. And it, it makes me think back to even like our Nebraska trip. Like, I wish we could go back so much. And, and oh, I'm area, sure you're, so. yeah. I'm sure. No, I, I, Nebraska will kick your ass, man. And you, you did well. Um, thank you. But it's, it's just one of those things where, I wish I would have just been walking around scouting rather than relying on cameras. And I've, I've said it a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand more. I wish I would have just went scouting, you know, cause I would have found something, but instead I'm like, Oh, I'll just put a bunch of cameras on the water tanks. Well, that was something that Dan mentioned <laughs> oh at, the my God. At, at during his talk was like, you basically you need to be walking around scouting because the first time you encounter that buck, the first time you walk into his bedroom is going to be when you're scouting. So you better, mm. it's best to be scouting and find that spot and get in a tree at that point, because you don't know if that opportunity is going to present itself again or not. Yep. Yeah. And and there are things that Dan does really well. And I think, so I, I write these things that no one ever reads on Facebook and I've slowed <laughs> it down, but they called wisdom Wednesdays. So it's relating a life learning topic to hunting and, 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 kind of like the struggle you go through and how you can extrapolate meaning from that. And so one of the first ones I wrote, I think it was the first one I wrote was about killing trees. And so a lot of guys, they're killing trees, that tree they sit for 
20 days straight and eventually they'll kill in it. It's like, if I just sit this tree, I will kill a deer, right? Well, Dan, what he does is he bounces to 20 different trees and 20 different situations that he pre-scouted in that time. So while Dan may kill on the 20th day and that guy may kill on the 20th day, Dan has 20 spots worth of experience. Yeah. He is becoming a jack of all trades. He's learning what works and what doesn't work and he's reapplying it to a new area. Now, I think a happy medium where you're gaining aggregate knowledge about one spot helps and then you're making the determination to move on. I think that is that's the key for me. But um, I think that Dan has such a crazy extensive knowledge about, I mean, you can ask a guy about any situation, he'll have a good answer for you. And so like, especially Marsha's like, the guy freaking knows what he's talking about. And I think it's because he constantly puts himself in new difficult situations that are foreign until he becomes very good at every situation. And um, I would say one of his, you know, I don't know if Dan, Dan doesn't like listening to podcasts. So I already know he's not going to hear this, but <laughs> I think one of his downfalls and one of the things that frustrated him a lot in Nebraska was he did a lot of scouting and he did a lot of bouncing around, but he never did what I did which was sacrifice a morning hunt to glass. And what, what I start doing when I go on out of state trips, that's tough. Is, yeah. If I have the deer density, I try to have a sacrificial lamb is what I call it. So I will deliberately, if I can't see a deer, I will deliberately figure out what I believe where they're betting. And I will deliberately try to bump a mature buck. You know, I'll go in like I want to kill him, but like I'll try to bump a mature buck and then I can dissect exactly why he was there and I have certainty of what class a deer was in there, why he was in there, you know, what wind, what was all the conditions. And I can copy and paste that to another situation. And now for the rest of the trip, I have a perfect example of what the deer in that area are actually doing. Because you go into it with a lot of misconceptions about pressure and, and age class and all these other things. But that gives you certainty. So, so what I had to do is when I first really, really found success is I started glassing. And then the day after I did my first glassing, I got in a I got a shot at a deer. Um, the next morning after I had shot that deer, misjudged range, hit it in the bag strap, didn't recover it. The next morning I glassed and I decided to give up, quote, give up another morning. And I ended up on a high wind day spotting a deer bigger than the one I shot, quite frankly. So 155 plus um, bed down. And um, I stalked up to five yards on him. Could have shot him in the neck, decided not to. And uh, he bolted out of there. Bad wind swirl happened. But again, on a, great deer right away what i thought was going to be giving up a morning sit on a new property to learn about the deer in that area and then the next afternoon i was like all right well that deer bumped down here he bedded in this situation i did my second spot in stock ever and i killed a buck and then i stayed an extra day to help dan and eric and i said if i were you guys this spot lines up perfectly like the one i stalked the giant i stalked the day before and they were like, well, we've been scouting these areas. It looks really good. So we're going to go here. I was like, all right, well, I'll glass from this spot and I'll let you know what comes out here so you guys can get back on it. And a deer that 145 plus popped out at 6 p.m. within 20 yards of the tree. I told them to sit in, no. having never been there. So, and I got crystal clear footage of that. And I so, remember that. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, you know, it's so different because the deer are not as pressured they're betting in way too obvious of spots if you were to try to apply it in a marsh in wisconsin and it wouldn't work out if you were doing those tactics in wisconsin but it worked there and the only way i ever would have found that out is if i admitted i was stupid and i probably didn't know what i was doing and said i'm just going to learn the only way i know is certain and and when i gave up my ego 
and decided to, you know, remove all doubt, I found success. That's nice. so awesome, dude. It's thank you. It blows my mind still that so many people don't realize what bumping a deer does for you. It's it's I feel I probably feel more confidence when I bump a big deer than probably any other form of scouting. Cause I'm like, yeah. Oh man, like me and Josh had it in uh, Kentucky, Kentucky. And, yeah. and then we walk over and lay in the dude's bed and we're like, okay, let's just pull up our map here. And uh, <laughs> we're just going to figure your little ass out right now. And, <laughs> I mean, it's phenomenal. So that's, that's a really good tactic. And, and we didn't, we didn't do that at all. I mean, we, I mean, I bumped all kinds of mule deer does out of their beds. I can vouch for that, but, um, we were kind of after mule deer and then kind of switched to whitetail and it was just, it was tough, but again, went about it's it. A very hard state. It's, it's a it's, very hard state to just get a, a five to seven to 10 day hunt in even. Cause yeah. I mean, I was there with, with, with Shane Simpson and, and I was bouncing to completely different properties than Dan and the rest of the guys. Um, and, and, um, yeah, I mean, I was doing very different things. And actually, I had found a property and then you guys had confirmed that it was one that was like what you guys had looked at before. Yes. Um, and so like, you know, great minds think alike. I saw very similar things to what you guys saw too. Um, and so it was like, even with all of that, you know, I had to bump to a new property and that property happened to be another one that Shane was hunting. And Shane had been there days before the season. He eventually got a crack the same morning that I got my opportunity at that bedded buck. But like that guy had spent a week or two before the season glassing and scouting on the right property, doing the right stuff. And it just didn't necessarily line up. He ended up not recovering the deer he shot, but mm. it was like he was doing it all right. Mm. And in the perfect spot that he had experience with in the past and it still didn't work out. So it's like, there's some level of, you know, the 10 minutes leading up to the kill to the 10 minutes after the kill that is extraordinarily pivotal. And it's a lot of timing that's dependent on a lot of factors that are out of your control. So it's like, you guys probably did the right thing. And we're just minutes off from either seeing the deer or getting the info that you had to get and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, there, I'm not going to de deny that there's some level of luck to it, but um, you know, I just happened to put myself in the position to get lucky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I equate, this might be overstepping, but I equate deer hunting to quarterbacking in the NFL, literally one tiny little mistake. It's so difficult, especially if you're trying to target like a decent animal, right? Like mm -hmm. bow hunting. Sorry. I should have prefaced this. Bow thank, hunting. You. Bow hunting. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Bow hunting deer especially when you're talking about public lands and all that like that's it's tough man one little thing done wrong and it's over and it's it's similar to you know you make one mistake in an nfl game and the game is basically over it's the difference in winning or losing your shoulders are flat the match is over period there's yeah. not a three second count in college like you know it's your your shoulders touch flat to the mat. It's over. There, yeah. I mean, biggest upset in the history of wrestling. Pretty much, pretty much, not exactly, but just happened last year. Spencer Lee, yep. four time going to be four time NCAA champ, 
phenomenal wrestler, world champion, um, gets caught in a move and gets pinned. And I think it was the semis, semis or quarters, uh, by, uh, by a guy from Purdue. And like, that is rewriting history right there on a guy that is the most dominant. This guy last year with zero ACLs, two torn ACLs, majors his guy in the national finals. I think he outscored his opponents 53 to two. That guy loses the next year. Who predicts the most dominant wrestler last year, the most dominant run in potentially NCAA history that did it with two torn ACLs gets beat, like not even in the finals. Like that's just, and that's what happens in deer hunting, man. Like you can, like it, like with this buck that I was after before the one ended up killing four times within range, the closest possible setup, not even just the closest possible tree, which that, that it was, but the closest possible setup, there was not a piece of grass I could have sat in that was even doable to put an arrow through like, and it didn't happen four times within range. And it's like, did I do anything wrong there? I don't think so. But like it, it just didn't work out, you know? Right. Yeah. You got to take what the defense will give you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they weren't giving you much on that one. No, they were not. No. So that's that's probably a good segue there, leading into this yeah. season, um, with that buck you were just talking about as your number one target. So let's, uh, Rick. Do you do you want to lead it? I, I'll let the, I'll leave the transition up to you. Yeah, since since you since you took the segue out of my mouth, I was going <laughs> to say speaking speaking of your season, uh, uh, you we're having you on here to talk about this buck and you talked about a number one buck, but you've, you've had quite the season so far. You were explaining to us a little before the podcast. So kind of, kind of give our listeners an idea of how the season started and, you know, locating these deer, um, starting to understand movements and then walk us through, you know, kind of the, the story of, of what happened. Mm -hmm. So, uh, before the season started, um, kind of to get myself in position to get going here, um, during the spring and f- during the bleak winter to spring to all of summer, um, I had scouted at least, like, at least 300 miles. Like, it, it not even, I am certain it's more than that. But, like, we're, we're talking easily 100 miles traveled within 90-degree weather. Like, strictly on days, 80, I'd say 80 degrees or more. So, I burned it this season and i knew that i was facing a daunting task moving to completely different terrain type and marshes um and i just was like i'm gonna burn the boot rubber and and figure it out and so i put a lot of work in um i got short notice that i was going to nebraska went to nebraska got a kill so i was going into the season ready to go like fired up i got i got a deer already like i can start to be selective and so i go through the first so many days of my season we opened september 16th and I go through the first 10 days. And within those first 10 days, I had watched a buck that I was targeting four times rise out of its bed and not get to me in daylight. Within 80 yards every single time it rose out of its bed and didn't get to me in daylight. And so it was a huge confidence boost because that's my first few sits in this new terrain. But it was like <laughs> it wasn't enough, you know. And so I was jacked up. I had a bunch of different deer that I was happy to kill, which is, you know, 125 or higher is, is what I was going for. And I was happy to kill it. I was telling myself like, man, like it's my first year in the marshes. It'd be real cool to just kill 125 or higher and I'd be satisfied, you know? And so I um, got all the way up to September 28th doing that. And then I got a picture of a giant clean six by six 
buck and it was a freaking stud and it was an area that i expected there to be a lot of pressure already so i had close to written it off and so i'm midway through the acorn drop he's in an area that i believe he's feeding on acorns when he's betting by this camera that i got him on and i was like oh boy like i need to put a sit there right away i need to change up tactics so i go to sit there i check two um non-cellular cameras i have in the area and unbeknownst to me i had gotten this deer all throughout velvet i got him in august i had gotten him in early september i got him actually the only time he daylight was opening day opening oh, morning geez. i had him daylighting eating acorns on a camera wow. um i had him just all leading up to september 28th and so i was like oh god like i feel like i know what this deer is doing because i scouted really hard and so I danced between his core areas. Um, I felt like it was in a rush because a cold front was coming and I wasn't going to be able to hunt it on the weekend. And um, I, I was really aggressive right off the get go. And I kept running close to into him, you know, just being a, a few minutes behind or a day behind in a spot, getting him on cell camera. And, um, and it just wasn't happening, but it, he stayed in the same area. So it made me think that I was bouncing around the edges of his core. And uh, it turns out I was, he was actually betting, in fragmites amongst a sea of cattails. And he really liked to do that. Um, he didn't like to be one of those deer that bedded on the edges or on a lone tree or even a lone bush. He liked to be in fragmites. And I just think he was just super isolated and safe when he was doing that. And and I just think that's what kept him alive this long. And so um, he was doing that. And um, throughout my occurrences with him, um, I had one encounter with him. He had this really short snort wheeze he would do when he would get around other deer. Uh, uh, young bucks, even in the beginning of the season, it's like if you started, it's like he would like do that where he's like almost spitting. And instead of that continuation on, he would just stop and the other deer would get the hell out of there. <laughs> so like the first time I heard it, I was set up on his exit trail. I had a doe come in. Uh, I think this is mid October. I think it was like October 15th or so. And so I had a doe come in the trail. I thought he was going to come down. She worked off and I got her in front of my cell camera. I had a spike come from the other direction for my cell camera. So I start getting down. It's after closing. And from like 40 yards away, I hear that sound and I almost fell out of the tree. Like it scared the living <laughs> hell out of me. And um, I was like, what was that? And then all of a sudden I hear the spike run away. I get both deer running away and he doesn't cross. So I was like, I don't know if it was him. Um, I ended up getting him on a set camera later that day. And so I didn't know that yet. Um, and so I was like, all right. I bumped to a different area, getting a different angle, looking in on his bedding. So I watched a deer go into that bedding in the morning that next, a few days later, I watched a deer go into that bedding um, and push around a doe. And it was about to turn and come straight towards me. And then it decided to cut off. And so I grunted and snort wheezed at this deer moving in the cattails. It turned back to that trail. So the buck is following the doe. The doe crosses that trail. The buck crosses that trail. I snort wheeze. The buck turns back, stops at that trail looking my way. I can't see the deer because it's in tall cattails. It's like 30 yards away at this point. And then continues on and the doe turns around and follows that buck. And so I was like, what the hell? And so I ended up sitting there all day. And um, that afternoon, watched the deer get up, watched the deer work back into daylight about five minutes after shooting light. and. I was like, well, I want to say it's him because that's a super deep grunt. The doe acted really peculiar. Like he was courting her like it was, you know, October 18th, 20th, somewhere around that range. So it's like 
first dough and heat kind of range, you know? And so it was like, I don't know if it's him and I'm going to stop being one of those guys that just makes all these assumptions and just says like, Oh, I'm on that deer, blah, blah, blah. You know, cause it, I can't stand when people make all these assumptions about where they're traveling and what deer they're on and all that. I know his voice. <laughs> I know. Right. So, <laughs> so I wasn't thinking that. And so I, I was walking out and I was actually midway through crossing the sketchiest freaking canal ever that you'll go up to two inches of water, but chest deep in muck. And I'm crossing a log to get across it. And I get a cell cam notification on that camera. And I'm like, Oh God. And so midway across this log, I was like, I don't care if I die. Like I need to check this camera right now. And it was him, <laughs> him exiting that bedding from the same direction. I had watched that deer just a hundred yards down the trail. So it was like, it was him the whole time. And so I was like, great. You know, like I was on him. I knew where he was. And there was one setup I could have got closer, but again, he hit that land and five minutes after daylight had closed and um, targeted him there a few days or two days in a row. Um, and, uh, nothing i i fear that i may have bumped him out the night before on that but um th nothing there and i had some another nice 10 show up and a few other deer and i just passed on him i wasn't willing to, to shoot him because after this one and then i just had the feeling that he had shifted right so like i well basically actually sorry let me go back here um i had that occurrence of the deer check the cell camera across the log and that morning and afternoon the next day i sat that spot and so I was like, I'm not sure if this is going to work out. Good deer came in, but not the right ones. And so I was like, I feel like I'm off of him. You know, I feel like this is not going to work out. Um, I gave it a day's rest and decided I was going to go check some cameras that I had set just in case he bumped. Um, so like when I knew that he was going to phase off of Oaks, I set a bunch of, I set like two or three cameras, did a shitload of scout, did a lot of scouting. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, a little scouting. And um, I set where I think thought that he would bump to. And um, I uh, was going in the next day to just relocate, see if I could get inventory and figure out where he actually moved to. And so I go in without my stand. I have my bow in my backpack with me. And the first camera that I checked had him showing up the day before, the day I gave it a rest, um, as close to he'd ever been in daylight besides that opening day, opening morning occurrence. And so I was like, Oh God, like if he repeats, he's dead. I text like all my buddies saying that, like if, if this buck does what he did last night, he will die today. And so he was like 10 minutes after shooting light or five minutes after shooting light, 80 yards from dry land. And I knew how slow this buck worked. So it was like, that's, that's enough. That's shooting him before, you know, shooting runs out. And so I ran back to my truck, ran all the way back to the area with my stand then set up and, um, I'm watching a different patch of fragmites that's 600 yards from the last bed that I had targeted him on. And I see it all move. And you know, usually it's like red winged blackbirds or something, <clears throat> but it's just a local patch moving and all the blackbirds shoot out of that brush. And I'm like, Oh boy, like that's him. It's, it's about to happen. He's going to walk down this trail right to me. And then there's just like nothing else. It doesn't move. It starts getting dark. I'm like, what's going on? Five minutes later, a guy comes walking down this dike, this access dike, making a bunch of racket, shining his headlight in the cattails. And I'm like, great, like my hunt's over. So I let him work past shooting like closes and I start getting down. I get to the base of my tree and I'm wrapping up my sticks and I hear movement coming through that marsh from that bed. And I immediately knew it was him. And I was like, great. Like now I just sat there. I, I don't use my headlamp when I'm cleaning up my stick. So I had my headlamp off and, um, 
I'm just sitting there listening to this deer work all the way up to me. And he gets easily less than five yards, probably three yards from me. And I can hear him breathing and I can hear him chewing branches and chewing leaves. And I'm just like, yeah. And I'm in like a catcher stance. So I shift from my left leg to my right leg and I can feel like my thermal drift down into the marsh. And he either hears that movement or gets a, a whiff of me and just, and I have audio of all this cause I'm recording on my phone. Um, and just quick blow jumps off. And then for three minutes straight, just the deepest freaking blows and stomping you've ever heard. Like, just giving you chills from how deep this is. And I'm like, God, I knew it was him. Like in the same way he was traveling the day before, like, and so I was just distraught at this point. I think this was October 25th. And so I was like, what do I do? Um, And so I I tried figuring him out and I put a couple more sits to it and I never got a picture of him on cell camera. Of course, back in his original area, I wasn't getting him on camera back in his secondary area. It was going to be some third piece of the puzzle that I was going to kill him on at this point. And I just didn't have, I just didn't have it. Like I, I was on sign that I believed is his, but it could have been three days old and I would have been 600 yards off him again. And so um, I was faced with the decision, do I continue on this deer or do I go do my rotation in Ohio with Jake Bush, which I was looking forward to all year. And I was like, it'd be selfish of me to stay here. And I really want to get the experience of hunting with him and learning from him and crazy cool hill country in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So I left there. I left to go there, had an amazing time. Um, While I was there, Jake and I were scouting up on a ridge top and I got a cell camera picture from a place I had spring scouted in a video that's called closing in on the kingpin. And um, I set a camera on the exit from that bed. And I knew that when I got a deer in that area, um, it was going to be a giant buck. And so I had that camera gone pretty dry most of the season and I got a notification while him and I were discussing what to do on this ridge top. And I was like, Jake, I got to cut you off. Cause like, I got to check this camera right now. <laughs> I, I know it's going to be good deer. And sure enough, it was a big old 150 plus 10 point. I actually kind of know what that 10 point would score, but um, <laughs> so, uh, yes. So this is the deer I ended up killing. And so I was like, that's awesome. I got a 12 at home. I don't care. <laughs> and so <laughs> I went on with that trip, killed a buck in Ohio and was driving home the next day after I killed and got a text from my buddy. He's like, Hey, am I going crazy? Or is this like your deer? Like, is this the 12? And I was like, took me like two seconds while driving to see that it was him. And I was like, just freaking crushed, man. Like I, I had, this is the first year I committed to chasing one singular deer. And, and I was in this goal to be like that guy that went out there in new terrain and killed the one giant he was after the biggest buck he could have chased and i was like super hyped about it and and just dreams crush you know i was so close and i was sure it was going to happen during the rut um and it turns out you know he he must have broke up in his range on a doe um and he must have just gotten risky and and followed her somewhere he shouldn't have and got killed and so i was crushed and um and eventually it just hit me. I was like, why are you so sorry for yourself? Like, why are you being such a little bitch about this right now? Really? <laughs> I was like, why are you like, dude, you get to go hunt deer. Like now you're free. You can go chase whatever you want. Like this, this is a good thing. Like you get to learn more and you get to go hunt more properties. And so I was hyped and I was pissed off, but I was like determined. Like I was, I was not going to be one of those guys. that's like, oh, well it's over now. I'm going to go shoot a 120. 
you know, or I'll shoot the first eight pointer that steps out. I was like, no, this is like the goal. This is what we're going to do. And I'm going to find the second best buck I can and commit to him. And it turns out that that 10 that I had gotten on cell cam in Ohio on that bed, I had scouted like crazy was the second best buck. And so I, I call him my number two because I, I don't classify, you know, that one deer I got at midnight. That's just this toad that I have no experience with as on my hit list. It's deer. I realistically kill. I have the pieces of the puzzle to get it done. And so at this point, like I have four sits left in my whole season to get it done on this deer. And so I, I know I've been talking for a long time. So I want no, to keep talking. No, no, no. no, keep going. This is we'll, great. Yeah, we'll we'll hit on some some points. At, at the <laughs> cool. end. I have questions in my head. Good, good. So um, so I got four sits left. I got two afternoon sits. If I make an excuse at work, uh, which were valid excuses, <laughs> I, had, I had a dentist appointment. I had a dentist appointment. Placement my dentist offices are closer to the land I hunt than my work. No point in me going at back for forty five minutes at the end of my shift. And, um, and, uh, no engineering was getting done anyways. I was going to be checking my cell cams, but, um, and so the, the other day, and so on that day where I had that appointment, um, I ran out into the marsh and, um, went and sat that tree that was 40 yards from the bed and 10 yards from that cell camera that I had gotten pictured him on. And this deer was kind of on a two day cycle, which I find that you got to kind of catch on to these things really quick. Cause if this, when you wait for it to really become a pattern on the third try, like it's usually too late. It's usually like he's not doing it a fourth time, you know? And so he would show up with a doe and um, this doe was familiar with the area. She had broken off of her doe group He'd show up with a doe and I would get her going into that bed and then him porting and surrounding and protecting that area the entire time. And then a day would pass and then he'd do it again. And so he had shown up in Ohio a day passed, he did it again, a day passed, and now I was hunting him. And so I went in there in the afternoon, high winds, I could get really close. And I heard stuff moving back into the the, the bedding, but he never came out. Um, and so I was like, it could be him. Um, you know, something could be going on back there, but I just don't know why he didn't show up. So the next day and the next few days I had to work. But that next day, October se- or November 7th, all day long from 5 30 till 7 p.m he was all over that camera he was he was zombie walking between that bed and all around and i'm sure he was just defending that doe and then occasionally going back into breeder and so i was like i was like i just have to leave right now like i have to go out there and get that deer i know i could do it and i had to just sit there and let it happen and then of course the next few days i don't get any pictures of him in that area so i'm like great like like I just blew it, you know? And so Friday I could get off. I got into work really early so I could get off a little bit early. Um, I helped some of my coworkers out. My boss was more than welcome to, to, to let me off a little bit early on that day. So I could go out there. And, um, I ended up that morning getting that doe walking back into that bed, but she never showed back up. No other bucks ever showed there and he didn't show there. So I was like, I could go blindly sit there and hope that she bedded 40 yards away where she was last time he showed up and just be one of those guys that's hunting a camera and hunting a cell camera and, and, and hoping it works out and that the timing's right. Or I could scout my way in, determine if that was the right area or not and make an adjustment that I think could kill him. And so on my way in, I found the sign I needed. Essentially I, I 
made the decision that I wasn't going to get close enough to that bed to make it work. And I made the decision that that was not where I was going to kill him. I broke off a little bit and maybe 10 yards later, I found a doe bed with just pure stanky estrus in it. And, um, I was super hyped about that. And, um, so I, I progressed on and I was like, well, where can I sit here? You know? So I'm, I'm trying to negotiate where I'm going to sit and I land on this one tree and I look at it in hindsight and I'm 250 yards from the nearest place. I got a picture of them. Um, I am 250 yards from where I scouted that bed that he was consistently rising out of, but I know that there's more bedding back in this Tamarax. And I know that this is the direction that he would travel. And I know that he's with a hot doe and he's probably locked in there and I got to be close to them. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors. And I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used the 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the saddies fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And so I set up and, um, you know, a bit of time passed by. And eventually the first thing I heard was something stand. And then I heard like slurping and I was like, that's weird. Like it's not walking in cattails. Well, what I heard was them drinking water. And it was just like one of those things where like, you've never heard it before, but it's so crystal clear. You're like, that's exactly what that is. Mm -hmm. So it took me like a second. And then it was like, and I was like, 
it was funny because I remember thinking in my head, like, oh, they don't drink like dogs. Like, they don't lap it up. They, like, actually <laughs> suck it up like humans do. And so it was funny because I heard that right away. And I was like, oh, well, I'm extremely close to him right now. <laughs> like, like, at first I thought, oh, that's neat. And then I was like, wait, like, that's him. He's very <laughs> And so I was like, oh, geez, like, get ready, you know. And I'm in this spindly little tamarack that I can fit like, easily. Like, it's this wide. Like, it's softball size. It's not less where I'm at you know, cause they thin up really quick. And so I'm, I'm in this Tamarack and, um, I hear that sound. I hear a pause for about three minutes and then I just hear brush start raking and I'm like, Oh, he's going to come in. And they just worked at the slowest freaking pace ever, man. And, um, I got a glimpse of antler for a second. Didn't know what deer it was, but I was like, okay, it's a buck. Like whether this is one I want to shoot or not, I need to be ready. And eventually He's winding back around this brush and right where I want him to come out, I start to see movement and it's a doe and I'm like, crap. And so immediately when that doe clears enough brush to start working into an opening, she picks me out and I'm completely silhouetted and I'm like, oh God, like, please don't be over. So I have my bow in hand and I use the string and the cam and everything to cover my face and break up my outline. And she is in this video. You'll see it really crystal clear. She's ears pinned on me doing these fake head bobs up and down for probably a good 20, 30 seconds. She's fake eating and then turning back and she's looking away, but keeping her ears swiveled towards me. So I'm just not falling for it. Like I'm sitting completely still letting her do her thing. And I know that when she starts to clear brush and come into my shooting lane, like it's over for me because I can't draw when she's out there on this buck. So when she started to move and put her head behind some cover, I drew immediately. I didn't know if it was, I assumed it was the buck I wanted to kill. I had called that the 10 was going to come from that spot and come down this trail and I was going to kill him, but I had to assume it was him. I didn't have time to decide whether this is one I wanted to shoot and then draw on him. So I drew and I ended up holding draw for two minutes and 12 seconds, something Good like Lord. that yeah. in the video, I think either two twelve or two fifteen. Um, and so a real long time it was well i practice it i practice it a lot in the summer like i do a lot of runs and i practice with an elevated heart rate shooting and then i also practice holding the bow not for like a time but for absolutely as long as i possibly can and i practice it like full draw like not like elbow crease like relief off the shoulder because i had to hold that full draw to keep my face outline broken from that dough i couldn't like tilt the bow to the side and make it comfortable like i had to hold it there Cause if I moved off of that, she was going to pick me out again. And so she put her head in that brush. I drew, she slowly works out past that brush and stops forever flicking her in her tail. And eventually I just hear this grunting come up behind her and he's just grunting, grunting, grunting. And he rounds that corner. He gets to where he, she was stopping and flickering her tail. He starts looking up and down and raking a little bit of brush, getting his, getting his forehead sent on it. And I'm just like losing. I'm like, don't look at the rack. Don't look at the rack. Like, this is him. Like, just don't look at it. Like, you're going to kill this deer. And um, I was debating before he came out, like, if I could down draw and possibly draw again. And I was like, no, like, like this is what you freaking trained for. Like, this is what you were born to do. Like, you need to do this right now. You need to sack up and make this happen. And um, so he got to 30 and took a couple more steps. He's at like 27 yards. And I did an er And as he was stepping, is when I made that sound and he grunted right on top of me doing that. And you can hear it in the video. And um, he didn't hear me, which is good because he was at a very, very steep quartering too. And um, it was a shot I could have slipped in, but it wasn't as good as what he ended up giving me. And so then he start, he came back to straight on, took a few more steps, got to 20 yards even, and then 
gave me a steep quartering too, but not quite as steep as before. I stopped him. He looked straight up at me and I put, I put it absolutely perfect right behind his shoulder. I remember at full draw after I stopped him, I intentionally looked outside of my peep and then looked back into my peep to confirm his angle and then just sweet squeeze and finish. And this shot was absolute like it could not have been more perfect. Just, just behind a shoulder, all of the first long, like the whole length of the first long and most of the second long, clean pass through exiting the length of his rib cage. Like it was fantastic. And I watch him go 30 yards and I'm scrambling for another arrow just in case I get another opportunity because he's fired up. And as I turn around with the other arrow, I look and I see him tip right, left, and then just drop. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And I lost my <laughs> mind, dude. You'll see in that video. I lost it. I almost fell out of that tree. The whole thing's shaking like crazy. Um, I was so hyped. Oh, All my dad and my buddies. And and it was just amazing to like, it's really different when you watch the deer fall too. It's just like, oh, it's yeah. immediate relief. Yeah. Like I worry so much about how ethical I am. And I was like really fortunate that the three deer I killed this year, I watched all of them fall. The second one, I didn't know that I did get it on camera, um, but I, I did the right thing and backed out, looked at the footage and he was, he had fallen. And so like to be able to get every deer I shot this year, shots on film and falling on film was like, it was Huge. amazing. Yeah. Oh, dude, was, that's, dude. That's tough. Oh, so, it was so great. I got to ask, what broadheads are you using? <clears throat> I'm using... This is before the hunting beast even paired with G5. I'm using just a G5 Montec. I, I've used them because it was the first broadhead I ever pulled out of my dad's scrap broadhead collection <laughs> when I was younger. And just from an engineering standpoint, from the way I think about physics and penetration and, and stuff like that. And I know, Chris, you must think about penetration a lot, too, because you talk about it a lot. But, but <laughs> there we go. Someone caught the new window. Yeah. <laughs> He's got three kids. But, uh, he knows. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I am the king of penetration. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I just that point splitting, like this is the same thing people think about with single bevels. It, um, just the cutting point the whole way through is penetrates bone better than an actual what they call a chisel point that's supposed to go through bone, you know, because you're constantly cutting, you're splitting that strep, you're splitting that pressure and you're focusing all your force on one singular point. And I like the idea of a three blade because it's a little bit more cutting. You're not a victim to the rotation of the blade at the point of impact. Um, Cause you could, you know, you could dodge if you're flat potentially, you know, I just, sure. I worry about that a little bit. They're a little bit easier to tune because the air pressure is extremely even on all sides. And um, you know, I just love them. I shoot a 125 um, and my setup's 540 grains with a 75 grain out or 95 grain outsert on the front. And what's uh, draw length and weight? I think my draw length's at 29 and I shoot 75 pounds. Okay. So you're cooking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you mm -hmm. feel like there's a certain spot on a deer that you're hitting or prefer to hit to watch these deer drop? Yeah. So again, it depends on angle, but if you're talking broadside, like on the ground, it's like, I hate to be like that same guy, but like that vital V, like it's just it. I kind of hug that shoulder because I know my setup can go straight through a scapula and pass through. I've watched it do that many times. Yeah. And so I'm fine with hugging that shoulder, but like I have had plenty of heart shot deer that go a lot further than my double lung deer. So yeah. I'm aiming like top Way of heart. Further. 
Yeah. yeah. And okay. I'm like, there it is. Right exactly. There. Yeah. I'm aiming like top of heart, <laughs> you know? And so like that top of heart and, and of course aiming for the exit. Right. So like that top of heart is just such a great sweet spot because you can be, you can be accidentally a little bit low. And, and this is the problem I have with having a little bit heavier setup is having your range down is very crucial, which is mm-hmm. harder on spot and stock hunts, but I'm ranging everything beforehand when I'm in the stand. Cause I have the ability to do that. And that helps like crazy with this. So, you know, I'm good with that. I know where my bow shoots when it's five yards, give or take. But um, that top of heart is if I'm a little bit lower than I expected, I'm drilling his heart, which that's a dead deer. If I'm higher than expected, I'm double long, which that's a dead deer. If he drops, I'm double long. It's a dead deer. If I'm right where I'm at, I get hard and lungs. So it's like, yeah, you know, I'm right where I want to be. That top of the heart, bottom long spot, you watch them fall whether it's a doe giant buck whatever mm-hmm. it's very rare that they make it very far when you hit them in that sweet spot there's just mm-hmm. too much coming together there mm-hmm. and especially yeah. i don't i don't know like we've got a a buddy uh luke who just shoots a magnus two blade mm-hmm. cut on nice contact and and i mean i think he watches almost all of his deer fall and yeah that's where he's hitting them. I mean, he's just absolutely smoking them in the top of the heart, bottom of the mm-hmm. long area. So, um, and they I, die from asphyxiation. Like a lot of people mm-hmm. think they die of blood loss, you know, and, and that's why yeah. I think heart kills them. Not as quick. Um, but like you, everyone talks about, you listen to elk hunters talk about how elk are babies when you hit them in the lungs. Well, it's like they got a big body to support. Yeah. And I was actually talking to Jake about this, Jake Bush the other day. And he was like, yeah, dude, these big bucks are babies. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're, they're tough as hell. He's like, dude, you hit them in the lungs. They got a big body to support up and down these Hills. Like, like they yeah. die quick. And, and I think the really cool thing to me that, that settles me as a, as a hunter is they don't know what the heck happened. Like those cut on contacts yes. that just zip through them. Even if they hit bone, like they don't know what happened. And yep. like, they just like, I've been choked out before. And so, like, you don't know that you got choked out. Like, you just pass out. It's air loss, you know? You just are like, oh, like, there's a panic. And then you're just like, oh, God. And then you wake up, and then it's like, whoa, what happened? So, like, yeah. that minus the wake up is like, <laughs> you have no idea. It's, it's yeah. extraordinarily peaceful. One minute you're chasing tail, and you're worried about – I mean, he's looking around wondering where that doe went. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm going to take a nap. And he's, he's done. Never wake up. Yeah. That's that's what we'll call the podcast. Minus the wake up. <laughs> awesome. So do you feel uh, one thing that's always piqued my curiosity with these marshes and just the flat land in general, how much are you able to play the thermals in these mm-hmm. spots? Because they are like stupid flat. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um it's not even remotely close to what the thermals are in hill country. Like it's just <laughs> such a different game. The uh, remove, don't remove thermals, but remove a lot of like ninety percent of wind based bedding. Like it's pretty great. I kind of like it, you know, because because that's a a little bit less of a factor that you need to consider. Now mature bucks, wind according to access, the time of year. If these bucks have been pushed to this point and they want to be smelling access, that's a different story. But like. You know, the way that they will use thermals at times is sitting on the edge of a marsh, letting it suck into that marsh and that water. Okay. And 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 kind of 
what they'll do is they'll, and I, t I talked about this before, but almost always what they do is they stand up and you're like, if you're one of those guys that can get really close to their bed, you hear them stand and you're like, Oh God, like that's the buck. It's going to happen, you know? And they just, then you hear nothing for like five minutes. You're like, what's going on? Like, this is, was I wrong? Did I hallucinate? Like, is that actually a deer there where there birds freaking out? And then you hear some rustling around and you're like, Oh, it's from that bed. Like it's going to happen again. And then nothing again. You're like, what's going on? And then they start walking and they almost zombie walk all the way to you, but they zombie walk down that trail because they're making a crap ton of noise. There's not a lot they're gaining from scent in the sea of cattails as they're moving them all. And they'll stop on the edge of the cover where you may get your shot opportunity, but it's the edge of the cover in which they're exposed and they'll sit there. And I used to think at the beginning of this year that they would just peer their head outside of that edge of cattails when you have like a cattail to marsh grass edge. And they were just looking and observing and whatnot and hearing. But what I really think is going on is they're probably using a bit of that thermal pull because um, I'll get into this in a sec, but the thermals are almost always going to suck in that direction. And I think they're using it just a little bit. I don't think it's giving them quite in hill country where you're getting a hundred yard worth of scent coverage, but I think they're getting just what's outside of what I can see right now. And, and they're using that to their advantage. And then after a long time smelling that, then they're going to an area where they're exposed. You think, so, you think that they could be pulling down the edge, the thermals could be pulling the oh edge yeah. of the cattails? Yeah, and it depends on the wind direction too because like you look at uh, hardwood transitions into open cover and it's almost like a bowl effect. I'm yeah. sure there's some level of that that goes on in cattails too because the bucks are doing that whether the wind's blowing from their back or not. So I think that especially when that wind starts to calm down at the end of the day, those thermals kind of take over and that current has to move like to the vacated area, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and I could definitely see it pulling down that edge. And I actually learned in a thermodynamics class in, in college um, or fluid, fluid dynamics, because air is a fluid that the way thermals really work. And the teacher wasn't describing it as thermals, but we were talking about fluid expansion and how that works in gases. And so in air, what it really is, is buoyancy. So like a big ship that weighs a crap ton of pounds floats because it's more buoyant it has a larger displacement of force than the water and so what happens in air is when things heat they expand so certain air molecules heat up and they expand and then become more buoyant in the sea of air molecules than the rest and they travel upward and heat is always transferring towards the minority until it reaches equilibrium so if the majority of the environment typically the air is a certain temperature the ground or a spring-fed creek or something like that is almost always cooler. A shaded area is almost always cooler. And so that hot air rushes to that point to restore it to equilibrium until it's eliminated. Well, in the case of a spring-fed creek or something like that, you're almost never going to divert that creek to the temperature of the air. you know. And it's kind of like that in the marsh when you get those cold nights and stuff like that, or you get those chilled afternoons where there's been shade in those cattails all day. It's almost always like those thermals to some little extent will be dumping in there when that sunset because it's never going to reach the exact temperature of the land right outside of it. You'll see it when you walk out in the afternoon in the marshes, like it's much colder in those cattails than when you get five feet higher or into a hardwood mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. And so yeah, that's why thermals rise too, is because when that thermals rise in the morning, everything's super cold and you finally get that beam of sunlight hitting that hill. Well, that hill now is a little bit warmer little bit warmer and that's the minority so that cold air is rushing up that hill and that hot air is continuing to rise and it just keeps sucking and sucking and sucking 
until it becomes the majority of the air around it and steadies. That's equilibrium. Yeah. So that was going to be my my question as far as like thermal pool, like in the mornings or like, you know, when, when you get the sun that finally comes up and starts warming up the ground, do you find them going into those drier spots, right? Where, where there's less cattails, I'm assuming, and it's getting mm-hmm. more sunlight or the ground's exposed to more sunlight and it's warming up. Are they, mm-hmm. do they go in there to catch that rise as it's coming through there? Or? So I think that they are traveling to a bed largely here depending on pressure um and i think that the the size of the area that they're betting on is so small um it's usually just enough to fit their body or maybe a couple more uh, if you're a doe um that i don't think they're gaining a lot from the area around them in that case whereas like if they're working an edge they're getting information on the entire edge or the area that they're heading to um, I think when they're on that specific area, maybe it'll provide an advantage to them, but it's probably only sucking from about 10 yards from them. Um, and, and I think that they would hear that anyways. I think they're on that really isolated cover because it's just not where they're, nothing's going to get to them and they're not going to figure it out beforehand from noise or, or anything like that. And and often what I find with these really mature bucks is there's cover that like I would have targeted in Nebraska where it's like big cottonwood trees sticking out of a marsh with a huge island there's like browse all around it wild sunflower it's like goldenrod perfect like situation where a buck can be elevated and it's great but those get hammered around here so what i found in the early season is before those willows drop their leaves just a little tiny willow bush in the middle of nothing that provides a tiny little elevated surface or red osier dogwood or a tamarack root ball like that's what they cling to and it is so hard in the early season because that's absolutely everywhere, but you need to kind of figure out where they can use that to keep a monitor on pressure and stuff like that. Um, I think Josh, when you see a random hill coming out of the cattails before the pressure, because a lot of people just cling to the hardwoods if there's any bit of hardwoods here, but mm-hmm. I think before that pressure hits the hardwoods, they're much more keen to chill around that hill. Once those thermals, you know, the thermals are rising in the morning and they can sit on that hill and they can be where they fed all night and still be safe. I see them returning back to bed later in that very initial part of the season where they're not getting pressured there yet. Um, and I think it does have to do with the thermal advantage there then too, because they can kind of catch that thermal from their bed before they decide to go back down to it then and be in the place that they decided to feed all night anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see pressure dictating a lot out there. Um, I feel like it dictates a lot in any high pressured areas. Yeah. Yeah. That was juicy. <laughs> Absolutely. Was, I've been wanting to ask somebody that question <laughs> for like two years. And cause I went to Indiana last year and I purposely went to a flat area because a, I felt like the Hills were going to get more pressure. And I had, mm-hmm. I had actually truck scouted just driving around the day before and I pulled in the first Saturday of November, 7.30 a.m. and there's nobody in the parking lot. And I'm like, oh, and then when you're looking on the maps, it's like, you know, to the untrained eye, you're just looking at a big ass patch of woods. And Mm -hmm. I even actually made a post on our page. I was like, okay, how the hell would you guys break this down? Like, what are you looking for? I'm used to hills. There's no terrain here. You can barely pick up anything on a topo map at all. And uh, so people started talking about edge and all this different stuff. And the whole time 
I'm thinking, I wonder what the hell the thermals are doing in this place, because I'm sure you probably didn't know how to react when you came here and the mm. sun went behind the trees and you're like, holy wind. Like, it's a, <laughs> it's a suck, dude. It sucks down the hill. Yeah. So, well, I, you're, you're used to that, I guess, because you said you hunt in both countries. Um, yeah. But it's but, different. I mean, it's a different magnitude there because our tops in Western Wisconsin are large. Like we have large, expansive, wide tops. Yours is like you get a violent flip at those tops. Yes. Mm. Yeah. They're skinny. Straight up and down and knife edge. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like a wedge or something. Um, Man. So that's okay. I I have another. I have another question. I think Chris will like this one. Um, Chris is big on wind speed. At what speed out there do you feel like the wind is going to override the thermals? Like how, like, is it going to be five miles an hour, 10? Um, I'd say it's a pretty, it's relatively low compared to hill country. Okay. Um, that's, it, that's I mean, it's extremely I low compared to hill country. Um, I would say it's like five to eight miles an hour. Yeah. Um, I, I'd say the thermals are a factor, but you know, like, um, if you're way into those cattails, they're so thick, man. Like you can't see three yards from you. They're 10 feet over your head. Like it's, there's not much that penetrates that. So you got your wispy tops and stuff that will blow in the breeze. But like, if you're at my chest level and them cattails, there's not a lot of wind that like penetrates that. So I assume that within that cover, like within that edge, I think that thermals are dictating a little bit, but then again, like the whole area is so cold. So it's like, unless you're nearby to a warmer area or you're nearby to a transition and cover, it's probably not like continually providing you an advantage. So like you could have 10, 15 mile an hour winds, but if you crouch down the cattails, you can hear everything like it's quiet. Mm-hmm. But if you stand up or you're on an edge, like it's loud, you know, the wind's everywhere and it's overruling the thermals. So outside of the cattails and everything, I, I think because of how flat it is, like it's a very low wind speed, like five to eight miles an hour. Um, but inside the cattails, there's still thermals going on. I just don't think it make much of a, makes much of a difference unless you're sitting next to the deer's bed, hoping you can shoot him as he jumps into it. Right. Which is probably all he really needs to protect against in something like yeah. that. Well, um, it's like coyotes make a crap ton of noise. I mean, yeah. just splashing water, like everything is so loud yep. in the marsh. So you need that wind to get any bit of close. And, and you, you hear all the time about deer, you know, kind of like what you said, they're, they're not really wind-based bedding, they're mm-hmm. sight or hearing based. Like a lot of deer, I've heard of a lot of deer bedding in cornfields and they're yep. just daring something to walk through the corn. Cause I mean, unless you're a yote going down a row or something. And, mm-hmm. and if you're going down a row, you better pick the damn right one. Right. But yeah. um, I just, I feel like they can use their other senses out there. And then as something gets super close, then, you know, the nostrils kick in, but um how how deep does the water get in these marshes? What is that like? So we had a dry year this year, which is hilarious for me to say because it's my first year hunting marshes. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it, it was barren and there was not much water on top. And a lot of the cattail areas were standing on top of dead cattails. And then when you step on it, you get an inch or two of water. Um, by the time I killed my deer, it had gotten much wetter. So every step's in water and you can go easily up to your knee on a deer trail if you're walking in the middle of it. So you kind of have to like hopscotch side to side on the cattail root balls to get through. Um, and so this water 
depending on where you're at, like if you're in Tamarax and you don't have major root systems all around of floating bog, like it's deep. Um, you can get up to your waist pretty quick. Um, if you're wow. just in cattail, yeah. And if, if you're in cattails, um, you, you know, you could be anywhere from the bottom of your boot tread to like over your knees in water. It just depends on what structure you're standing on. So like for reference, like I went, I'm wearing gum leaves, So they're like two to three inches taller boot than, than like a muck boot or most boots. Um, when I was pulling my deer off of where he died, just on the trail, he walked on to get to where he died. Like I went within a quarter inch of the top of my gum leaves. Like, Jeez, cause I accidentally dude. stepped in the middle. So like those deer walk in water all the time, which Josh, another thing I forgot to mention is I think the reason they're not, I think the reason they're also picking elevated cover for 90% of the year is that they're going to get like, they're going to get hypothermic if they sit in water, you know, of course it's yeah. not super comfortable, but, but again, like there are these little micro factors that keep them alive over and over again. So it's like, you think of a creature that stalks them, it could be quiet as hell the whole way to it. And it might be those last eight yards that makes a difference in that deer's life. So, you know, they're going to pick every advantage they can. And I'm sure that they use that whenever it's available. Um, but yeah, man, they, they walk through water like crazy. And, and that was kind of like, I hunted marshes for a year ish, but and by a year, I mean five to 10 sits my senior year of high school. And, um, I didn't know what I was doing at all, but I just remember thinking the last that I ever did before I left for college, like, there's no way a deer would ever step in that marsh because it's so freaking cold out and they would just freeze to death. And then I had a buck spook and just jump into a river and like 20 degree weather and cross the river. No problem. And I was like, well, there goes everything I knew about deer hunting at the time. So, um, so yeah, the dude, they just put up with it. It's crazy. It's really cool, but it, it, Definitely something you got to wrap your mind around at first. It's definitely freaky. I had my first swamp hunt uh, all by myself. It was for ducks, not deer. <laughs> but you don't know if it's going to be shin deep to your waist. Like I couldn't, I don't know what it's like there, but I would assume stagnant water is all the same. Like it's kind of murky, muddy, can't really see the bottom. And that's where I was. And all I kept thinking about was, A, if I get to water over my waders, I'm screwed. And if I fall, I mean, the mud was probably 15 inches. Like, it, I mean, yeah, I was yeah. sinking way down. I'm yep. like, dude, if I fall, hopefully I can get my feet unstuck from the mud. Because yeah. otherwise you're not just going to stand <laughs> up. I have a horror story about that from this year, actually. Um, so after my kill in my video, you'll see a little clip of this. Um, but I was with my buddy Cam, who is the one who sent the picture to me, who is the one that has is learning his way through deer hunting, killed an awesome buck, his second deer ever. He killed his first deer ever the day that I killed the buck that got me on the hunting beast with me on, on public land, and it was awesome. And then he killed his second deer ever in a spot that he scouted all on his own on on – a new piece of public and a new area never hunted. And it's like a 115 buck, like 115 to 120 on public, like just ecstatic. I drove an hour that night, helped him drag out all night. Like just such a great dude who's been through me through thick and thin my entire life. And example of this is we went to a spot that was just hell on earth to get to. And on the way back, we chose to do a different route. Cause we were like, 
it couldn't uh, possibly be worse than the way in, you know? It's always so, worse. It's, it's always, always worse. worse. So he he's deemed this Jacob's shortcuts. Like, it's, it's, it's a thing in my group that, like, whenever a trail goes wrong, it's because Jacob had a shortcut and he screwed everyone over. And so, oh, it's so funny. I got us into a situation in Wyoming one time, so, like, that was where it started. And so he just, for the end of time, if something goes wrong, it's because of a Jacob shortcut. But um, so we took a Jacob shortcut on the way back. And uh, we're walking in this area that I had walked during turkey season and scouted. It had been just fine, but there's a creek that runs next to it. And this was kind of a dry year, so there's no running water on that creek. And grass had grown over it, and it's all muck, but there's green grass on top. And so we eventually, after going through hell for two miles, get to this spot with this creek. And I'm walking, and I'm thinking the creek is to my left, but I can't see it. And I went immediately up to my waist in muck. Like oh, geez. belt line coated in muck. You'll see it in the video. And without him, and I, I go up, the, what stopped me is my B stands on my back and it stopped me because it increased my surface area and kept me from going in deeper. So I immediately crushed my quiver, snapped like some arrows off. Like they didn't break, but they snapped off my quiver. Um, and I was just like not facing the edge, not facing the bank, but I was facing out into this little stream of muck. And so I couldn't get myself out. And what had happened was I broke through that top layer, but it was all muck. And where my boots were was running water. So like there was slight running water underneath. And I could tell because my boots started filling up with water. Oh my God. So I'm like, I don't know what I can do. Like I can, <clears throat> I might've been able to do like a dip and like push myself up off in the bank and just kind of roll off or shove my stand underneath me and get off. But like without him, I, I don't know. It would have been a long time for me to get out of there. And so he did everything he could to pull me out. And then we kept walking again. And then I fell through, but I was ready for it the second time up to my knee. And um, he's laughing at me. And we just kept saying this couldn't, well, at least it couldn't get worse. And then I fell through again. And like, <laughs> and we said that again. <laughs> and the funniest thing happened, man. I was walking in front of him, trying to be like the guy that screws up so he didn't get in trouble. And then he starts going in. He realizes that his footing left. And instead of like swearing or something, we were so assuming that this was going to go bad that he instinctively just said, oh, here I go. And just went, went down to his thighs and muck. And we were just laughing our asses off. And it was just, it was just brutal. And, um, God, it was just one of those situations where, like, yeah, if I didn't have my friend here, I'd be in some real serious trouble <laughs> um, in an area that doesn't look that harmful. But um, <laughs> I was really glad to have him there. God. Sounds like it, man thousand ways to die in the wilderness that's for right. sure right i want to uh, go back for a minute i'm gonna i'm gonna hop back to the wind thermal game because i know chris is probably he'll probably think of this later but <laughs> I, I know how it's my work two steps ahead <laughs> when you were hunting out there were you hunting relatively low to have like more consistency with your thermals and your scent? So um, the answer to am I hunting low? Yes. Um, but I have no choice in what height I hunt out there. Like okay. it just, it's wherever you can get in whatever tree is available. There's usually just one tree that will get you the kill. Um, I hunt to not be silhouetted. So like, I don't want to be silhouetted. I'm not going to throw myself five sticks up just because I can uh, if I need to sit in cattails and shoot into those cattails, I know that I need to get high because if I get four sticks high in a tree, I can maybe shoot 10 yards. So like 
it it's just getting that angle downward at times. Um, at sometimes there's branches you need to be underneath and not over. Um, and so that's how it works. But um, when I was early in the season, when I said I was getting really aggressive on that buck from the start, I did consistently hunt a little bit low because I hunted some really sketchy winds. I thought that he was going to shift when that cold front happened. Um, and I thought it was going to be over at that point. So I got super aggressive and was getting on winds that were maybe 15 degrees off of where he was. And um, getting really low in those situations whenever it permitted helped have consistency in my wind. There's a little less swirling. If I was nearby water and edge, it would be a little more consistent with those thermals, um, especially because it's afternoon sits. That that sucking down thermal was great. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that's great if you can, but the unfortunate reality is we just don't always have those options. And I'm one of those guys, and Chris, I know you're like this, but like I will stare at a group of trees for an hour trying to decide which one I should get in, you know, and, and it, and I will pick the right one most of the time. Like, like there is, I don't know, I'm not going to say I'm like really good at this or anything, but like, it's rare that I have a buck go that I'm targeting, go by a tree that I could have killed him in and me not be, right. you know, yeah. like 90% of the time I have a mature buck come out. He's crossing where I intend him to. Awareness and, in space. Yeah. And I think it's because of all of that. It's all that debate I go through and making sure it's the right situation for that deer and not just any deer that could come out. Yeah. And a, a huge player in that, Josh, especially in hill country, but also in these marshes, more than people give him credit for, is playing those thermals and every little bit of that wind you can. Because that's just one more thing that, like, you know, if I'm two sticks lower, I may only have a shot to five yards, but that shot to five yards is the only shot that would give me a clean wind direction. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so, so that is something that I don't think a lot of people consider. And I think it's really easy for guys in flat land to just write it off and, and say, ah, well, it's not a factor or it's not something I can use to my advantage. Um, when, when it's, it's different, if you just pay attention to it a little more. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I, I wanted to ask that. And just because, I mean, especially for like flat land, a lot of people talk about wind and thermals. And then, you know, when I started getting into this, I'm like, okay, well, how do you actually use that to your advantage? Like, what does all this mean? I feel like understanding kind of like height and hunting helps that a little bit and how to mm-hmm. take advantage of your wind or, or the wind direction or, or thermals. I ran into that in, when Chris and I hunted Kentucky opening weekend this year. Um, uh, when we were talking beforehand, it might have been before we hit record, but we're, um, uh, yeah, where Chris had said we bumped a buck. And we got in the buck's bed and we're like, why in the world is he down here? Like, this is kind of goes against what we had just learned while we were out there. Mm-hmm. And then we determined there was, there was um, a hub system, but there was like a drainage ditch in the middle. And it was fairly deep and it was consistent thermals. And I actually hunted the hub system on a, on a wrong wind. It was, it was a west facing hub, right? Yeah, west facing yeah. hub. And we had yeah. a wind coming out of the west. Mm. Yeah, so really you want an east wow. wind, so it's blowing out right. of the hub, anticipating deer, you know, moving down the hub. Mm-hmm. But I hunted on the exact opposite wind because in that ditch, it blew out of the hub all day. Like, yeah. I dropped milkweed down there, and it was a strong wind out of the hub. If I got too high in a tree or too high out of the ditch, the wind took over and I went the other way. Um, but on camera, I did confirm that the the bucks were moving with that ditch with that consistent thermal. So, and I, I've had that happen too, where where it's just like a steep old used to be a creek kind of thing. 
especially mm -hmm. if there's water in it, but it used to be a creek kind of thing. And you can almost just get your head like three feet above where that sharp edge turns down into that ditch. Yeah. That's kind of higher than that. You're screwed. Yeah. But I find that's it exactly. like Chris, mm -hmm. exactly what you were saying, Chris, too, with that edge, too. It just when you have length to it, like when you I'm assuming that that was a ditch that was long and it wasn't like windy or one point spot or something like that. It's yeah. almost like it's vacating as it's going down and it's sucking down and it's following that path and creating a current. Yep. It's literally that. And and it's so interesting too because we came to all these conclusions in our mind after seeing this buck because this certain spot, I mean, I literally almost I don't know if I almost died, but yeah. had a bad experience where you, you had like it would be okay to say you almost died. It would probably be He's like I got you shot were, in the leg, and then I was poisoned. But it was <laughs> when 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 we're when we're struggling to make phone calls and we're disoriented. I'd say that it's close to death. Mm -hmm. So, I had like a lot of things. I don't even know. <laughs> did we do a podcast on the Chris death wish? No, yeah, we're yeah. we're doing we're doing do that, that as a as a closer for the year of all yeah. the mishaps yeah. that happened. A bunch of ways to die in the wilderness. <laughs> we'll add clips from Jacob's vlog. <laughs> but, but essentially, talking to these guys and then a doctor, uh, they think there were like compounding factors like sugar crash, heat stroke, mm. um, just uh, dehydration. You name it. I had. I was excited. I'm like eating this shit up, scouting the hell out of hill country by myself. I just found some spots I was excited about and hung cams. I was like, all right, I'm going to kayak across this water. And rather than taking an hour to kayak around, I'll just park my kayak and then I'll walk my ass up the mountain and down the other side, hang my cam, scout, whatever, and then come back. Well, I got down in the drainage and I tried to go back up the hill and it just wasn't working out. I kept getting mm -hmm. gassed after like two steps. And I'm just like, what is, what is going on with me? And then I started like quivering and my teeth are like getting all vibrating and shit. And so I was like, eh, let's just, you know, calm down. Everything's fine. Let's just sit down. We're going to drink some water. I think I took like a packet of this stuff called Liftoff, which turns out probably was also a bad idea. Um, yeah. And so uh, I was like, okay, let's try it again. Like 20 minutes later, gassed, couldn't do it, sit back down. Well, then I started freaking out. And so yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to go down to the lake and I'll just yell for help. Well, when I started walking, no shit, my like my biceps tensed up or whatever, and and my hands, like my arms and hands were locked like this, Whoa. and I was like, "What's fucking going on with me right now?" Yeah. So, I'm listeners, like, he's doing a T Rex pose right now. Ripping balls. Yeah. Looked like Tua Tonga Vailoa after he got hit during the Bengals yeah. game. Yeah, literally, yeah. like ah, so, um. I hit the emergency SOS thing on my phone. Well, congratulations, Apple. Your your emergency SOS sucks if there's no <laughs> cell phone reception. So just make a phone call instead. Don't bother with that button. So 
Uh, and and what's stupid is I literally have a satellite messenger, but I was like, oh, that's only needed for like really far out of state places. I'm safe here. I've been no uh -huh. take those things with you all the time. So, um, I <clears throat> I run out and start yelling down the lake. Well, then I look at my phone and the cove, the drainage I'm in, the cove that comes up to it is like a mile long. So nobody's hearing me oh. out on the lake. <laughs> so I start side hilling and, and like there's all these little tiny creek drainages going into the hill. So I'm going up and down through this water at this point aimlessly. And then finally I was like, okay, clearly like if I walk all the way to the end of this, I'm going to have to come all the way back. Like there's nobody around it's a very low population area to begin with. So mm -hmm. I was like, dude, you're just going to have to, I mean, I don't know what's wrong, but if we're going to die, we're going to die trying and not being a little bitch. So just walk until you can't. And hopefully you can make it up to the top to where you can at least get reception. And then if you're fine, you can make it to the bottom and then kayak <clears throat> your ass across and go from there. Dude, I've never been so excited to get to the freaking boat ramp in my life. And of course, there's all these like families and everything putting in and taking out. And I'm just sitting on the boat ramp in my You're just kayak. going through hell and there's people having a picnic and, next to you. And you're like, and <laughs> oh my I, God. I look like Tom Hanks on Castaway after I got out of that kayak, dude. So oh it was God. just, it was crazy, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, let's, let's all try not to die. But anyway, I get into all of that to say the whole time that day I'm pissed. Cause I'm like, dude, where's the wind? Can I get some freaking wind please? And it was like that every time we went, Yeah, never had any wind. It was stagnant. And I'm like, am I in the Hills right now? Because yeah. normally when you get to the top of a hill on a ridge top, you got some kind of breeze doing something. Right. And it just wasn't that way at all. So oh. that is why we came to the conclusion of the thermal base bedding. Well, wouldn't you know it, we find that buck, have all these wizardry, you know, amazing ideas. Mm -hmm. And then we have a stiff breeze all <laughs> opening weekend. <laughs> And we're like, dude, what the hell ever? Oh. Like, this is so stupid oh, right now. And that's Mother Nature. If I ever meet her, I'll choke her. Like, <laughs> she does this stuff to piss me off. You'll you'll need a certain wind or a certain wind speed or temperature or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. What what do you need? Okay, we're gonna do the opposite of that. Like the exact other end of the spectrum. So that's my story on how I tried to die the first time. I did it twice. The other one involved an e-bike and some railroad tracks, but we'll get into that in another episode. I need to be on your other episode for this too, because I almost got, I was pretty, I had a bad run in with a bison in Nebraska and I had a heat stroke experience three and a half miles from access. You, sir, are invited for the New Year's edition. <laughs> yes, of you are. How I'll find another die. way to almost die too. I promise. I'll, I'll get into something before, before then. Uh, actually, I won't be in Alabama before then, so I'll probably well, we're, hopefully. Yeah, we're recording that one before you go to Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, Rick. 
He's planning my funeral. Over. <laughs> <laughs> you got to make sure. Well, you might find a new way to die in the South. So that's yeah. true. That's for part uh, two, though. Well, exactly. Boys, this was this was a good time, man. I, yeah. yeah, I love hearing the perspectives from other regions. Different. I mean, you guys have. It's to my understanding, talking to you, a uh, little bit of of uh getting mario's perspective dan and mm -hmm. then another guy that i've kept in touch with a lot is joe rentmeister and everybody oh, talks yeah. about pressure just being crazy up there with you know all the hunters you guys have and everything so mm -hmm. um it's neat to hear your guys perspective on mm -hmm. you know not just dealing with that but then the completely different terrain and everything it offers Absolutely. Yeah, I, I pulled a little Rentmeister tactic in my video uh, when I first went this bed. I remember Joe talking about this before, and um, he might have gotten it from someone, but I, I clinged onto it from him. But fresh splatter onto the cattails, like in hill country, it's just it's a track in the dirt most of the time, or rough, roughed up leaves, stuff like that, tree taps, things like that. Uh, a lot of times in the cattails, what I found is when there's water, there's fresh water splattered onto the cattails or mud, and it's like ding, ding, ding. He walked in here today. You know, and so that's one of the things I would look for routinely on the entry trails to these beds, scouting my way in. Um, but all those guys, I mean, fantastic. And there's a lot of things that I think once you get to marshes or you come out here and we scout or something like that, you'll see the similarities to hill country. Because just because it's a different terrain doesn't mean that deer aren't deer all of a sudden, you know. Sure. And it's really sure. cool, like, to be able to draw, like, what you saw in a completely different terrain and then test that theory in another one and have it work out dude. That's a cool thing. Then you're like, wow, I must kind of actually know what I'm doing here. Like, yeah, I, I almost feel like rather than using, you know, it, obviously in hill country, um, you know, a lot of the terrain uh, dictates where things are going to go. But when you take away the terrain, it's all about exposure to sunlight temperature, mm -hmm. the different ends of the tip, temperature spectrum so um that's it's really cool to kind of get the wheels turning in that way because headed to alabama flatter than hell you know a mm -hmm. lot of water i'm super excited i'm gonna go try to flip the new canoe so um <laughs> we'll go go hang out with some cotton mouths and i'll probably <laughs> discover i'll discover the first northern alabama alligator or some shit so um but anyway well Rick, you want to take us home? Sure, I can do that. Uh, guys, it's been fueled by... Oh, wait. Hold on. Josh Josh has something he wants to add. We didn't ask like, our question. We didn't ask enough questions already. What do you we need to talk not. about, Josh? Jacob, tell everyone where they can find you, what platforms, <laughs> how to get in contact with you. That's right. Yes. Tell tell us that information. Josh Thank babysits. You. That's our babysitter. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got everyone on a tight rein here, and I appreciate <laughs> yes. it. Um, so uh, my channel is The Wild Calling on YouTube. Um, I do a little bit of stuff with the hunting beast as well. Uh, but you can find me at Wild Calling Outdoors on Instagram and The Wild Calling on Facebook. Um, I'm pretty active on all those things. Uh, I'm most responsive to Instagram DMs. So if you got a question or anything like that or you just want to reach out, uh, send me a DM or, or comment on the YouTube videos. I always reply to those. And um, my nebraska series is up with my nebraska kill my ohio kill is up and by the time you guys listen to this if it's 5 p.m central time on a friday this video will be released and i 
firmly believe it is my best video yet. So I would really awesome. appreciate it if you guys tune in. Hell yeah. Wait to watch it, man. Um, yeah. Before we let you go, I forgot to ask this question. <laughs> you, got, you got me all excited with the thermal talk. Um, Good. What is your favorite thing when it comes to whitetails, scouting, all that? What is your favorite thing you've learned this past year? Oh, God, that's tough. Um, I think the favorite thing that I've learned, if I was to throw it back to – it mostly applies to hill country. But the thing that I picked up on that I thought was really unique is something I just call bird dogging. Um, there's a drill we used to do in football when we were alignment. It's called bird dogging. So you're step by step by step walking your routes and habitually getting that pattern down until it's time to execute in a game. And so I call this bird dogging because what I've observed on trail cameras in marshes and hill country is in August to July and sometimes even early September, I have bucks walking their rut routes in the almost the exact same order, checking doe bedding areas, checking when the does that they know come into heat in those areas, if they're alive, um, what fawns they've dropped, because those fawns will come into heat the same time their mothers did. Um, I have them walking those routes, bedding in that doe bedding when the cover's thick in those early summer months, and then later in the year, replicating it almost to the exact same day of the pattern, like during the rut. And I found a lot of consistency, especially in the pre-rut of bucks moving, even more consistency than sometimes I see during the earlier times in the year when everyone says they're the most consistent. So wow. that that kind of thing, I call it bird dogging. I talked to Andy May a bit about it, Johnny Stewart, Garrett Prawl, and they said they've seen some similar things. But um, that's something that the big deers after last year did that. And the deers after this year, I didn't have him showing up until that, but it was him locked on a doe, which kind of snapped that zombie walk, so to speak. But that kind of like jumping from doe bedding to, bo to doe bedding, I find is what mature bucks do sometimes that keeps them alive because you'll get a buck that you think if you put a GPS collar on him, he's doing something completely random because you'll get him in one area one day and then a mile away the next day. And you're like, this deer is just insane. Like he's just completely random. Well, it's literally him checking that doe bedding area, not finding what he wanted, and going to the next one that he knows is going into heat that time of year because he has experience with what the mature does are in that area, what are the ones that are most likely to yield his bloodline, and he moves from that one to the next to the next. So if you put a collar on him, you'd think it's random, but if you understand where he's going and why he's doing it, you'd be on him the next day 600 yards, mile apart, and it would make sense to you. So essentially you're thinking that they're just – pre-rut scouting yeah it's, it's like practice i mean yeah, that doe dies it's it's he doesn't need to hit that area or yeah. and the does hold the area almost all year a lot of the time and then oh yeah if there's a fawn in that area i've had them so the one buck i was after in hill country two years ago um he ran that same route and then the last time that he was going to repeat on a doe bedding area he didn't do it and i was like what the heck i thought this theory was going to be good and then he hit that area in the secondary rut because the mom had vacated and there was a fawn in there and he waited for the fawn to come into heat. And I went to pick that cell camera and he was fighting another buck underneath it when I went to go pick it up and I bumped him off of that fawn. So I was like, okay, this works. Like, so that's something that I haven't talked about a lot, but that's the coolest that's thing. A good, I've learned. That's, a that's a really good, good 
I'm glad we asked this question because that's yeah. we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have you back on and discuss this because I've I've talked to Chris about kind of that literally that. yeah like mm-hmm. it's here it seems to be more like that first week of October like you'll have bucks disappear and it's like where mm-hmm. where'd they go or you'll get one that pops up it's like oh I haven't seen you and I've told Chris I'm like pretty sure they're just out checking their areas like mm-hmm. they do like a quick scouting trip go and check the areas where they may rut and then they'll like come back or or if it's if if you're in an, in an area where you know they mainly come through during the rut you may catch them during that first week and then they're there for a night maybe two and then they're gone and it's like well he'll, he'll probably be back when these does pop um yeah. we could we and could the- we could go into a whole conversation because I, I feel like people like if if you're seeing like whenever your does pop like mark mark the date and time yeah because it's, yeah. it's, it's going to be hot again the the next yeah. year around that time and, and, and i used to time fawn drop dates when i had to get to new properties every time and <laughs> in hill country what triggered this is placing cameras in areas that i was on fawns like very very fresh drop fawns and then hunting those areas that 200 to 201 days um from when i believe that fawn dropped um and <laughs> that was like the clutch thing till in a new area timing the rut so like last year i was on rutting bucks those in full heat october 18th like rutting running grunting chasing everything and it's like the more that I have encounters and the more you try to become a jack of all trades in regards to mature bucks, um, because like, just keep in mind, everything I talk about is I'm thinking about mature bucks when I do it. Um, they just don't do a lot of stuff randomly. Like there's some kind of reason and whether it's a little thing or a big thing, I think it's very important that you don't just make an assumption. I think it's very important that you don't just say like, Oh, I got this down and this is why he's doing this is why he's doing. I think you just take everything at face value and try to extrapolate these things if you can. And it's just something I've seen too many times to like ignore it. You know, it, there is a correlation between it, whether that theory is spot on or not, I don't know, but it's something that's got me on deer habitually in that pre-rut period. You're freaking me out now. Cause I, where I killed <laughs> my deer, there's a significant amount of does. And in particular, very close to where I killed him, there is a doe with two babies and I thought, oh, you know, we need to thin them out. You're only allowed one public land doe here. And I thought, mm-hmm. if I kill a public land doe, it should be here. Like, there's a lot of deer. And after him coming down off the hillside into that area and bumping those does like that, I'm like, do I just leave her alone and let her be here next year now? Like, I, I don't necessarily mm-hmm. know that she was in heat. Mm-hmm. But she's a hell of a decoy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, just got me thinking a little bit, but yeah, that's good stuff, dude. We're gonna have to do a podcast just on that. I like that a lot. Bird dogging. All right. Well, Rick, you ready to take us home so you can go to sleep? Let's wait and see Stop. if Josh has any more questions that he hasn't <laughs> answered yet. <laughs> I'm gonna keep I have a whole bunch. I'm gonna keep them to myself. Okay. (laughs) We'll do another one of these because I've I've really enjoyed listening to all this. And um, I think our listeners specifically are going to want to hear more about this stuff moving forward. So, oh, yeah. Um, Guys, this has been Fueled by the Outdoors. We've been your hosts, Rick Cates, Josh Luck, and Chris Leppert. And tonight we've been joined by Jacob's Cleaner. Guys, thanks for listening to us. Talk to you later. Bye. See See you.